welcome. It's Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to another program of Medically Speaking. And we are Medically Speaking tonight about cardiology. It is February, February 3rd. Welcome to February. And it came in like a lamb and hopefully it ends like a lamb. Um, We are happy to focus on Heart Month because we have an incredible cardiology team. So we are here tonight with a one of our top cardiologists, Dr. Peter Chen, who's on the phone with me because he's had an incredibly busy day. So we have him on the phone with us. Hi, Dr. Chen. How are you, Robin? Great. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Are you kidding me? Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to tell individuals in our uh, our listening audience a little bit about you. So Dr. Chen is part of our Franklin Medical Group cardiology team. He is board certified in cardiovascular disease, nuclear cardiology, echocardiology, and additional certifications in vascular medicine. He is a graduate of Cornell University and completed his residency at Georgetown University. And he also did a fellowship, I believe, at Hartford Hospital. Is that not correct, Doc? That is correct, Robin. So let me tell you, by way of all that, we have been lucky enough to grab and secure you here in our greater Waterbury community. So I am so happy that we got a a physician of such prestige in our area. So thank you so much for coming our way. You're being too kind. Thank you, Robin. So now what led you to us? Well, it was a great opportunity that, you know, presented itself five years ago. I got to join a great group of people, and particularly Dr. Paul Kelly, uh, who is a legend in our community. And <laughs> it's been is. a great experience. It's been a great experience. We built a really great practice. You know, the culture of the practice is great. I mean, the setup, the testing lab, the people. It's been a great time, and we've experienced tremendous growth in the five years I've been there with oh, Dr. Kelly. We, we've definitely experienced quite a bit of growth. I know I've been with the hospital a couple of back at the hospital for a couple of years now, and just watching the cardiology team grow, not only in physicians, but also in the services that we offer and the lives that we touch and we're able to reach is incredible. And you're part of that team. So again, we thank you so much for being part of our team, but you're definitely the guru in cardiac testing, are you not? Well, I, I think it's something I'm very interested in, you know, and it, the great thing about our office, Robin, is that it's a St. Mary's facility and the parking is free and it's a great setup where there are no stairs, no elevators, so patients can come in and out with easy access to get their testing done. And pretty much we do everything under the sun that's available in an office. So now that office is where your private practice is too, which is at 1320 West Main, right near, I, I say now right near the new Starbucks. But <laughs> right. I think everybody knows where that is. But we have, right. our, we have the um, lab, which encompasses all the testing. Yes, and we perform everything, Robin. And I can't tell you how pleased our patients are when they find out that we have our lab right next door to our office and they can have everything done right there and then and with the access being so easy it's just much it's a much more convenient way for people on the go to get their testing completed say have an ultrasound of their heart in the morning and go to work or have their stress test and then they can just wait in our waiting room and watch television and read magazines it's it's just it's much more convenient for people, and that's what we strive for, trying to make things as accessible and easy as possible. Well, I really, I reached out to you to start our month off for Heart Month because, you know, I, I've been looking at a few statistics in regards to heart disease, and in the American Heart Association, you know, some of the new statistics show that one in every three U.S. deaths are called are caused by cardiovascular disease, and it's an alarming number that we look at, and, you know, we tend to look at the risk factors when we when we have uh, physicians on the radio with us and what you can do to prevent heart disease. But one of the things we tend to just touch upon but really don't focus on is the type of testing. And I know there's new advanced diagnostic tests and tools that are constantly being introduced to further understand you know the complexity of heart disease. And that's why tonight I wanted to focus just a little bit on that. And and you know we can definitely touch on anything else that you would like within heart disease. But because you're so interested in the diagnostic aspect, I think it's so important to highlight some of the things that we can do at the uh, Cardiovascular Diagnostic Center and, and what we do do to diagnose heart disease. Absolutely. We, so, Robin, for just for starters, we you know perform the simplest of testing at our office, something as simple as an ultrasound of someone's heart, commonly known as an echocardiogram. This test is offered quite commonly for evaluations of number of things, including shortness of breath, chest pain, dizziness, um, fainting, and basically what an echocardiogram is, is just an ultrasound of the heart specifically that basically can, you know, offer clues into 
the heart's function, any thickening of the heart muscle, the integrity of the valves, which allow blood to go forward and backwards, and any associated other conditions like aneurysms, which are a lot of times asymptomatic and people don't know about them until it's too late. With the good news about ultrasound, it's relatively inexpensive. There's no radiation. And, you know, it doesn't take long. And in really good hands, uh, you can have a very nice quality study that can provide a lot of information. We detect a lot of things that we would never have seen if we hadn't used it. And that's the great thing about ultrasound. You know, that's interesting because I think that it's confusing. It's definitely confusing to to the community as to what am I having? Why am I having this test? And maybe my cousin had another test. So it's really based on symptoms. So when you see the patient, you're listening to what the patient's telling you. You're listening to their heart. So as you said, shortness of breath, what else would lead you to do the echocardiogram first? A lot of times uh, someone will come in with something as simple as leg swelling, and leg swelling can be due to so many things, but a lot of times leg swelling is due to, say, a leaky valve and high pressure in the heart that transmits backwards and then suffuses into the legs, and as a result, patients will notice that, say, they can't tie their shoes anymore, or all of a sudden that um, their socks, there's an indentation um, where their socks um, go up to their calf. So something like that would merit an ultrasound evaluation, and that's how we oftentimes see patients. They come in with something as simple like leg swelling. And it's amazing what you can find when you look for it, and it's, it ceases to amaze me what, what you see every day when you do this every day. Oh, definitely. Now, if a patient, if you discovered on an echocardiogram that a patient had a leaky valve, what would happen? What would be, what would be the treatment for that? It, in, Robin, leaky valves are extremely common, and what you know, makes what makes it dangerous or not dangerous is how much of a leak there is. I oftentimes describe to patients, if you open a, a valve, is basically like a French door. And if a French door closes properly, you get a little whoosh of air when it, um, you close it and it goes backwards. If your door isn't normal, if it swings open and uh, past where it should, you get a lot of air coming through. That's abnormal, just like a valve. If you have a tiny bit of leak, a leakage going backwards, that's normal in most cases. If you have a huge amount of blood going backwards rather than forwards, that is abnormal. And in that case, if it really is pretty severe and there are symptoms such as shortness of breath with it, sometimes we refer those patients for valve surgery. Okay. And most times that surgery, we can do that at the hospital? Correct. And once, the, once that's treated, the patient generally will do fine and have no other symptoms. Absolutely. I just had a patient who had uh, open-heart surgery for a valve replacement, and although she did not profess any real shortness of breath beforehand, after, and now just four weeks after the surgery, she just said, I basically got my life back, and her breathing is so much better, and didn't even realize how much better she had gotten because the valve was fixed. So it was very warming to hear that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, I think that what we tend to do is we compromise. We say, oh, we're just getting older. So we compromise, and you don't realize that something can really be drastically wrong. And once you find out what it is and it becomes, it, you treat it, you, you feel like a new person. You're like, oh, my gosh, it wasn't my age. It was definitely something wrong with me. That's what definitely the art of medicine comes in and your clinical discretion because a lot of times patients will... And sometimes not say they feel tired or shortness of, or, or short of breath. And yet when you do some testing or you put them on a treadmill, which I can discuss in a bit, mm-hmm. then you say, hmm, maybe you are and you just don't realize it or you just wrote it off to something else like I'm getting older or I just don't get enough sleep rather than there could be something, you know, uh, in the heart that's causing this and a cardiac reason that they're short of breath or tired. Now, when you do, we do the echocardiograms or all of our testing at the Cardiovascular Diagnostic Center, you actually read these yourself, don't you? Correct. So when the studies are performed, we read them the same day and get the results to the referring clinicians the same day. And any urgent issues, obviously, right are, the patients are informed of right away. We've seen so many different things. Recently, we saw a patient who had a tumor inside his heart. It was not cancerous, but it could have caused a stroke, and he luckily underwent surgery, and it was safely removed. It could have caused a stroke otherwise, but that was picked up on echocardiography in our office. That was amazing. You know, that was something that I think all of us were talking about because we actually were able to, we saw some images regarding that. That must have, was that a first for you? 
That was the second time I've seen something like that, but it was the first time I'd seen something that large. It was nine centimeters by four centimeters, and luckily our whole cardiology team was great, and our surgeon who works with us, Dr. Paul Preisler, did an excellent, excellent job, and patient is doing really well. I was very pleased. I'm so excited to be able to be part of such a changing environment in healthcare here in Greater Waterbury. And our cardiology department and our team is just one example of the things that we can do right here close to home. And just from the point of the patient presenting himself to doing the echocardiogram to us reading it and then getting him to the immediate care that that patient needed and getting out such something that might have been sent somewhere else in the past, we were able to treat this patient and he is so grateful or she is so grateful with the outcome. And Robin, exactly to your point, that's the beauty about being at St. Mary's, is that what you in the past had to send out elsewhere to another hospital and leave town for, you can pretty much get the same high-quality services elsewhere that you, at St. Mary's than anywhere else, and you don't have to leave town. And I think that's the biggest part of this is because being ill is a stressful time for both the patient and the family. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when you're tired, when you're under duress and you're not feeling well, having your family drive around, stay all hours of the day and night, it's taxing to everyone. The fact that you can receive high-quality care here in the city is just, I think, a huge a huge piece of health care here, and it, it's high-quality. Pretty much the pathology and the illnesses I've seen here are just as amazing as I've seen elsewhere in bigger cities. Uh, it it is, ceases to amaze me, and the care they've received is top-notch here. So it's so exciting. And, you know, it's hard to nail you down because you are so busy. So I was so excited last week when you and I met for a bit and we were able to connect for this because you're one of my physicians that is so dedicated. Well, you're also dedicated, but you're so incredibly busy. And to get one of the cardiologists to do something, do a program during the month of February is really tough. But all of you have just stepped to the plate because I think educating our community is so important because we want to make sure patients are aware of what we have. And, and, and thank you, Robin. We, you know, it's, 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 medicine is one of those things where you do it because it's satisfying to you. I mean, nothing makes me happier than just having a patient feel better, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it all makes it worth it. And I just want, you know, people in the community to know that the things we do at St. Mary's, top to bottom, is top-notch. It's the highest quality. And cardiology care is the same way. I mean, we have one of the best, you know, um, readmission rates for congestive heart failure in the state. And we do, we do things like that. And there's nothing high tech about it, just good clinical care. Yeah, and more gonna, importantly, we have all the resources as well to manage them for more advanced conditions. For congestive heart failure, we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. We actually have the team coming in talking about our pump club. So I think it's so important for people in the community to understand how hard we're working with our community patients to make sure that they're taken care of and they stay out of the hospital. Absolutely. And that's the goal here is that just to keep people healthy, living active lives, and preventing the preventable. You can't prevent everything, but you try to prevent as much as you can. And, you know, I think the goal is just to do it at the most, in the most efficient way Absolutely. possible. Absolutely. And I want to remind our audience out there, if you have any questions and you want to ask Dr. Chen or myself anything, you can call in 203-757-1320. We welcome your calls. So we talked about echocardiograms, and I think, you know, we've definitely opened the door for other testing and, you know, intrigued our audience a bit about what we can do and what we do do at our diagnostic center. I wanted to ask you about a TEE or the transesophageal echocardiogram. Yes. Well, a transesophageal echocardiogram, Robin, is basically an, a cardiac ultrasound, an echocardiogram, that instead of doing it from performing it from outside of the chest, where they put gel on the chest and then probe from the outside, this echocardiogram is performed from inside the stomach and esophagus. Mm-hmm. The heart is, is both in the uh, front of the chest and sort of in the back. And by putting an ultrasound probe in your esophagus and stomach, you can access the more posterior part of the heart more easily. Hmm. Why that makes a difference is that a lot of times if someone has a clot in their heart, say when they have an irregular heartbeat such as atrial fibrillation, Hmm. or they've had a stroke and they're looking for a cause from the heart such as a hole in the heart that a quarter of people have walking around, believe it or not, that is most easily seen by putting a probe behind the heart in the stomach rather than from the front. And we do those procedures 
just so that most typically we can eliminate a heart a cardiac cause of a stroke or to make sure that someone doesn't have a clot in their heart before getting them out of an irregular heartbeat such as atrial fibrillation. Now is that something we do in the office or do you perform that at the hospital in the lab? We perform those in the hospital with some conscious sedation mm-hmm. if patients require it. A lot of times what it is, it's no different than take um, having an upper endoscopy done in the stomach. The difference right. is instead of a camera, we use an ultrasound probe. So what we can offer patients is medicine to numb up their throat and some medicine just to make them relax. Sometimes, and sometimes it's just easier to do it that way if the patients prefer. And we do those at the hospital um, all day, but tip, most typically in the morning, just so that because patients can't eat after midnight right, for the so procedure. And I'm sure that the patient wants to gag, so having them more relaxed in, in an environment where we can provide that sedation is better. Exactly, Robin, because what a gag reflex is involuntary. So the thing is, it's a natural response to actually have someone gag when you put a probe into their throat. Right. And what you do by putting some lidocaine in the throat, they can then relax and insert the probe. And it's much easier in that way, because normally the toughest part is just putting the probe into the esophagus. Of course, it's somewhat you know unnerving to have something sitting there but once it's in, it's usually not anything too painful. Now, would this be done on a patient with a history of AFib in addition, in addition to a patient that's already had a stroke? You can do it on both. You can do the uh, transesophageal echocardiogram just to make sure there's, uh, there's not a clot or there is a clot because about 10 to 15% of patients with an irregular heartbeat known as atrial fibrillation will have a clot in the back of their heart. So this is typically used when patients are in atrial fibrillation and they feel lousy from it and you want to get them out of it back into a normal heart rhythm. So what you would typically do is do this procedure to make sure that there is no clot there. And if there's no clot there, you could then restart their heart using an electrical shock back into normal rhythm. What if there is a clot? If there is a clot, what you typically do is just keep them on blood thinners for, say, four to six weeks and slow their heart rate down. And within four to six weeks' time, see if the clot has resolved, which in the majority of cases, it has resolved. And we've done that a couple of times um, in, in, um, here at St. Mary's. Now, if a patient has a hole in their heart, which is also could be a cause of a stroke, you said, correct? Correct. What, what's typically done in that situation? So um, There was and, a football I, player that had that, I believe. Teddy Bruschi. Yes, yes Teddy, Teddy Bruschi. Teddy Bruschi, I think... You're if impressed I that I know was, that. <laughs> that's right. You're a Patriots fan. It, it, no, it, I'm not, but... <laughs> don't say that on the radio, No, Robin, I but, can't. My husband will kill us. <laughs> but what a, a PFO, a patent foramenal valley, a hole in the heart, is also known as a PFO. Okay. And the whole thing about a PFO is that we all, when we're in utero, in the womb, have what this PFO, uh, or excuse me, a foramenal valley that's open mm-hmm. so that we can get blood before our lungs work. Right. And then when you're born and the doctor smacks you, your lungs open up, the hole should close within three weeks. Mm-hmm. In a quarter of people, this is people walking around, and 25% of people, they find that they still have these holes. Mm-hmm. So if you were to get a blood clot in your leg, say flying to Hawaii like Teddy Bruschi, or say like Serena Williams flying back from London, if you had a clot that went to your legs and into your heart and you had a PFO, it could go into your brain and cause stroke. Right. And that's one of the causes of stroke. And a lot of times you have to do these TEs to make sure there's not one of those. If you do have one of those, the options are blood thinners, or in some cases, if you can't tolerate a blood thinner, they could close it with an occluder device called an omplotzer. Now, there, I remember learning about this when I was in nursing school, that there were murmurs that you would hear in children and some children, that did not close, correct? And there would correct. be that hole in their heart. Correct. And would they do, I know my brother-in-law had this, and I believe they did corrective surgery on him when he was little. Is that still the case? Would that still happen? They can still correct those. There are a lot of different things that can, um, that can in terms of congenital heart disease mm-hmm. in children, that can produce a murmur or an right. abnormal flow. You can have holes in the top of your heart, like the PFO or an atrial septal defect, which is located near the PFO, but a little bit higher sometimes, or something a little lower called a ventricular septal defect that you're born with. A lot of times that's a lot more challenging because sometimes you can have uh, blue babies, so to speak, because of the oxygenation issue that occurs with 
hole that's lower known as the ventricular septal defect. Many of these can be closed depending on what's going on in the heart, and a lot of times that's assessed by echocardiography. That's, uh, then that leads us to our next, uh, our next test. So I wanted to talk about EKGs, which is kind of, or ECGs. That is the, the test I think that more of our community is mostly aware of. I think they hear about that all the time, which is for abnormal rhythms in your heart. Correct. So maybe talk a little bit about that, because I think that's the test that we tend to get more and more routinely when we go to our physician's offices. Absolutely. And EKG a lot of times is, you know, screening for many things, like if you're having a minor procedure or for many other reasons, people get EKGs or just to look at the rhythm if there are any skips. And it is amazing, as simple and as old an EKG is, Mm -hmm. it is amazing how much information you can glean from reading an, an electrocardiogram, you know, if you've done it long enough. And I can't tell you how many patients have come into the office with just an abnormal electrocardiogram that's even total, you know, nothing alarming but subtle. And then when you do further testing, it, you're lucky you've, did it, you've done it because you find some pretty, you know, dangerous stuff. It's, it's amazing to me. You know, and we did EKGs. I mean, when I was on the floor, we were always getting an EKG on a patient. It seemed to be the rule of thumb for everything you do way back when. And I, it's, it's kind of like the window of what leads you on to other things sometimes. Exactly. And that's the whole thing. Simple things that you can detect on an electrocardiogram, aside from skipped heartbeats, irregular heartbeats, is thickened heart muscle. Sometimes you can detect ischemia, meaning a blockage in a heart artery. Some things like that that are just simple or large chambers of your heart. There are some patterns that can, you know, indicate abnormal pathways to conduct heartbeats. Instead of going through your normal wiring, it uses a different pathway. So you can see so many things on an electrocardiogram, and that's why it's such a useful tool and inexpensive, I might add. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And do you find that it varies, you know, EKGs varies as you get older? Absolutely can, Robin, because of changes in the heart. A lot of times patients, especially as we get older, it's more common to have high blood pressure. And with high blood pressure, you can develop changes in your heart, like thickened heart muscles, enlarged chambers, leaky valves. And all those things can produce changes in the heart and on the EKG as well. And so a lot of times, you know, when we go for our physicals to the physician, to our primary care physicians, we'll get the EKG, and that's what sometimes leads them down the road to you. Correct. We see that so many times that patients end up in our office for an abnormal electrocardiogram, or they're having an incidental procedure, like they're getting an injection in their back, or they're having shoulder surgery, and then all of a sudden someone will do an EKG and it's abnormal. And it's abnormal. And that's and they feel fine, but it's amazing because we've seen people who've come in like that, and it turns out they had blocked artery, um, heart arteries and needed them opened up just from a simple EKG and no symptoms like chest pain. And, and, it's, and it saved them. Absolutely. And saved them from a heart attack and saved them from a potential bad outcome during surgery because it puts stress on your heart. Do you feel that with the tools that we have today and the proper usage of the tools, even the, even the EKG, that we're catching more people before they would result in a heart attack? Absolutely. It's, it, there are so many little clues that you can glean from doing cardiac testing, like EKG, like echo, like stress testing, that you wouldn't necessarily know. And a lot of times people curtail, say, their physical level of physical activity as they get older, or they attribute their symptoms like shortness of breath when they do things to aging, arthritis, or just feeling tired. Luckily, you can objectively assess these by doing stress testing and echocardiography to determine what is real and what isn't. We need to take a quick break, and we did a half hour already, Doc, so we're halfway there. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Hang on, Doc. Excellent.
Welcome back, everyone. Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital, Medically Speaking. And we are Medically Speaking tonight about cardiology. And we have with us one of our Franklin Medical Group cardiologists, Dr. Peter Chen. Hi, Dr. Chen. Welcome back. Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me. I'll let you, have, take, I'll let you take a little bit of a break. Just a tiny one, just a tiny one, because we still have a lot to talk about. So Dr. Chen is with our uh, Franklin Medical Group cardiology team. Um, Frank, uh, you've been with us the past five years, right, Doc? That's right. And been very busy ever since. Oh, yeah, definitely getting busier. Yeah, getting busier, which is which is great, which means that we're reaching um, a lot of individuals in our community, and we're focus, focusing on diagnostic testing um, for heart disease, and we're talking about all the different diagnostic tools we have and a lot of the procedures that we can do right out of our cardiovascular diagnosis center in at 1320 West Main Street right here in Waterbury. That's where, right. Where you do most of them. You That's read right. them all. So <laughs> when we left, we, we left with one of the earliest, simplest tests that can be done, which is our EKG. Now we're going to talk about a little bit more of a, a sophisticated test, which I know is near and dear to your heart, which is stress testing. That's right. And stress testing is one of the most common questions and referrals we get uh, for patients. You know, and obviously just the simplest thing, Robin, is stress testing is expressly used for the purpose of detecting heart disease, that is, coronary artery disease, any potential blockages in the heart. So, for example, if someone came to see me with chest pain, of course we would do an EKG. And one of the other tests what we would potentially order is stress testing in, if the person had enough suspicion for having potentially any blocked coronary arteries. And there are a couple of kinds of stress tests. There's a walking stress test, which is just walking on a treadmill and performing EKGs while they're walking. And then there's stress testing involving nuclear imaging pictures, all sometimes um, called SPECT imaging. Hmm. And we do all that in our office. Sometimes if people can't walk because of, for whatever reason, bad knees, bad back, or just for whatever reason, we can do a chemical stress test in which patients do not have to walk on a treadmill and just get an injection, which is pretty benign and only takes 10 seconds. Wow. And then pictures are acquired before and after just so that we can see what kind of EKG changes and when we have the nuclear imaging, what kind of blood flow is occurring in the heart. So what guides you to what type of stress test? What are the, what are the uh, diagnostics that would, of an individual that would lead you to the different tests? Well, that's a great question. Um, it always hinges on the pretest probability of what we think a patient has. In other words, if a young, healthy patient come in, came in with ch um, symptoms that were not classic for angina, meaning chest pain from a blocked artery, we could just do a plain treadmill if they had a normal EKG. On the other hand, if I had a patient who was telling me that they got chest discomfort when they performed activity like mowing their lawn or walking to the mailbox and their EKG was abnormal, you could definitely get a stress test with pictures so you could see the blood flow just because you're looking a little bit more closely to see if they had any blocked arteries. However, in some cases, if the symptoms were so classic you would just in many cases refer them right for a cardiac catheterization, which is also an angiogram to take pictures of their arteries with dye when you're really suspicious. And that's something we would do at the hospital in the cardiac lab, right? Correct. My esteemable colleague, Dr. Skandrit, does our cases and does a great job. Dr. Rebecca Skandrit, she is, right. she's hosting a program for us at the end of the month, which we'll talk about at the end. So, yes, yeah, she's incredible interventional cardiologist. So Absolutely. what would be those classic signs that you mentioned? So the classic signs are, say, if you had discomfort in the left side of your chest with activity radiating to your shoulders, radiating to the jaw that occurred when you with activity, especially predictably, and then resolved with rest. So a lot of times I'll ask patients if they get these symptoms with activity and how does it go away. And especially if it's predictable and it goes away with rest pretty quickly, it's a pretty suspicious story, especially with if they have, say, diabetes, they smoke, if they have a family history, and if their EKG is grossly abnormal. There are definitely some telltale signs. I think what's really scary to the population is, especially those of us that are weekend warriors for exercise, you know, and you're not as in, as in shape as you want to be, and how do you tell the difference between a classic sign and between that of just being out of shape? Well, and that's, a, that's always the conundrum, Robin, is that, and when there is doubt, what we do is stress testing to ferret out what could be real and what isn't. And depending on the suspicion, you would do the treadmill or the chemical nuclear stress test 
just to see if there's any blocked arteries potentially that you can, the symptoms are being caused by. And that's always a hard call when the symptoms aren't classic. And that's why your level of suspicion has to be higher. And especially with women, women are purported not to have classic symptoms of chest discomfort like men right. as a presentation of heart disease. So you have to be that much more careful. So they don't tend to have pain. What I what I hear from a lot of females is they feel more that shortness of breath, that just not being able to feel right after exertion, that heaviness, but not classic pain. Is that what you exactly, hear? Exactly, exactly. In fact, one of my patients, who's a woman who just had a stent in one of her heart arteries, only had heartburn at rest. She had no chest discomfort when she was walking around, and she had a stent, and now the heartburn is better. I I hate to go down this road of heartburn because it's so darn scary. Because as we get older, we all tend to have it, and I there's so many people that go on just over the counter antacids because they're thinking it's their diet and what they've eaten. When do you know when heartburn is a symptom? Oh boy, that's a great question. The three most common presentations of of heart disease are shortness of breath with activity chest discomfort and heartburn. In fact, Bill Clinton had heartburn as his presenting symptom before his bypass surgery (laughs) years ago. And the thing is, is that heartburn is always one of those difficult things. But I tell patients a lot of times, heartburn in the absence of eating food, especially, or heartburn with activity is a little bit more suspicious. Really? Yes. And what causes that heartburn? What is the, what's the root cause that would give you that symptom? Sometimes if there's a blocked artery, especially in the right coronary artery, the artery supplying the bottom of the heart, a blockage in that artery can produce symptoms like nausea, like heartburn. That's so interesting. You know, and and I'm sure the audience listening out there is like, hmm. (laughs) And unfortunately, unfortunately, Robin, a lot of people with risk factors for heart disease also have risk factors for heartburn. Right. It's it's hard to say sometimes. Yeah, so, you know, we're definitely talking about our population that is, and I I know we go down this road all all the time, but we, you know, we have a very poor diet in our nation. And, you know, we're looking at people that smoke, people that are are sometimes overweight and have a very poor diet. So all those... things alone do contribute to heartburn, but they also contribute to heart disease. So as you said, they go hand in hand and diabetes. Exactly. And what's what's also difficult is that the second part of the stomach is called the cardia. In Greek, it means heart. The nerves supplying the heart and the stomach are the same. So the symptoms of of discomfort from either organ is referred to the same location, which makes it even more difficult to uh, distinguish sometimes. Now, you did mention that if someone can't do a stress test versus, you know, for a variety of reasons, physical reasons or whatever, you inject um, a medication. What does that medication do? This medication, the one we commonly use in our office, is called LexaScan. It's um, basically a vasodilator. It opens up the arteries and increases blood flow. If you have a normal heart artery, the flow will remain normal and increase it up to three to four times normal. However, if you have a blockage in one artery that's large enough, more than 70% uh, typically, the other artery will, quote, steal the blood and the area subtended by the blockage will have less uptake on the pictures. So they look like little donuts. One area will look dark where there's a blockage, and the other will light up and look um, lighter. That's that's really interesting. You know, I always wonder that what it did. Did it put the heart in, you know, an episode of stress so that you would see, but it, it really just dilates it. Absolutely. And then you compare those pictures before and after you give them the chemical stress, mm-hmm. and you compare the f- blood flow in the same area of the heart across all um, 17 segments of your heart when you're imaging it. Is it common to have a patient experience symptoms of a heart attack during a stress test? It can happen, and the danger is is doing stress testing in people whose symptoms could be caused by what we call unstable angina Mm. or um, the precursor of a heart attack, basically. Mm. You can theoretically harm people by doing stress testing. So if there's ever really a question if someone is having unstable symptoms, meaning they're accelerating or you think they've ruptured a heart plaque and have a clot there, the, you would not perform a stress test and you would send them to the hospital for a catheterization typically and give them medicines which so is, you could monitor them. Right, which is, which is the safer, safer way absolutely, for that patient. Absolutely. Now, we talked about you know, the stress testing and and you do do it in the lab and you do it with and without the nuclear di- the nuclear isotope. So Correct. when would it be without and when would it be with it? So 
you can um, it's the sensitivity, meaning uh, the ability to pick up abnormalities is increased when you do the nuclear imaging. Mm. But as uh, I said before, it all depends on how suspicious you are of the condition. Say in a, in a middle-aged uh, man who, with diabetes who smokes, I would probably do imaging because the, because the probability of having heart disease is much higher, say, than a 35-year-old who's healthy, athletic, and just has some heartburn and right. a normal EKG. Right. Okay. All right. That, you know, in stress testing, and I have to tell you, I know so many people that have had had stress tests or a scheduled or have to be scheduled for a stress test and it, they're scared. Absolutely. There's that level of apprehension with the stress test that it's going to give you a heart attack. And, you know, I want to put that to rest and I want people to know that if we're scheduling you for a stress test, you've done that work up ahead of time. Absolutely, and I can say, knock on wood, in our lab, in the five years I've been the director of our outpatient lab at West Main Street, we've not had any one of those incidents happen. When we have, in the rare case, had someone have a problem, we immediately cancel the stress test and refer them to the hospital. This happened uh, the other day before a patient even had the stress portion. They were having symptoms, so we canceled the stress test and sent, to the, sent the patient to the hospital, and did, the patient did well. And, you know, that you just mentioned a key piece. We get them right to the hospital. And, you know, because of our ability to get patients right over to our hospital from our diagnostic center, it's seamless. It's not like you're going in through the emergency room. We have to be seen down there. You're going to go right over to the, to the lab, to, to the, to the uh, department. A- absolutely. So the pa- our patient who went over the other day um, arrived there within 15 minutes, was seen by the emergency department, got medications, got blood tests, and had a cardiac catheterization the next uh, day and underwent a successful stent procedure. That's, it's incredible. And these are things that, you know, before we were limited to do in this area, and we can do so much more now. Absolutely. Ten, uh, more than 10, uh, before 2005, that patient would have ended up going to Bridgeport or New Haven or Hartford. And, I and remember, now they and, can stay at home. And I it's remember great. those days. I remember family members, you know, going out of town for certain procedures and, you know, family having to drive to see to see their family members. So this is just so wonderful that we have the opportunity and the technology here to be able to provide the services. And, and they can do it safely. Our, our you know, our, it, that's the best part of it. It's safe, quality care. It is no different, really than going to one of those large university medical centers elsewhere in the state. And keeping it close to home. You got it. Now, some of the other procedures that or, or um, services that we provide is a halter monitor. Can we talk a little bit about a halter monitor and what that does? Sure. One of the more common uh, you know, uh, complaints we have from uh, patients coming into the office are palpitations where they, hear a, they feel a fluttering or a skipping of their mm. heartbeat. And so what a Holter monitor is, is basically a monitor that a patient will wear for 24 hours or 48 hours. Sometimes there's also a 30-day monitor that you wear to assess your heartbeat, and it can show you how many, if any, skips you have. And then by producing a diary, they can denote what symptoms they have and what time, and you can match up with their rhythm strips what their heartbeat was when they were having their symptoms like palpitations. And a lot of times you're looking for irregular heartbeats that they either know about or don't know about, and if they are having it, what kind of symptoms they're getting from it, or if they're not getting symptoms from it. You see everything pretty much. Now, long ago, the halter monitors of long ago were very big. Is it a similar is it a similar type of apparatus or are they different? They were they're a little bit smaller. They're probably, you know, about the size of an iPhone 6, you know, and <laughs> and, and it's not bad. It's 24 to uh, 48 hours and you just wear it. You know, you do your normal activities, you lead your life because you want to see what patients are really experiencing in real life conditions, not if they're just sitting on the couch waiting expectantly for something to happen. So see, Doc, I'm dating myself because way back when, <laughs> when I was on the floors, those halter monitors pretty much look like a life vest. They're, they're a lot smaller, I can assure you now, Robin. <laughs> when you say an iPhone 6, I'm like, uh, <laughs> he doesn't realize what I'm saying because they were really, really big. And they were, but, and we, and a lot of patients didn't comply with it because they were cumbersome. Well, and that, and that's now with the technology, it's not as bad. And so it's like a library book. They put it on and then they bring their um, symptom diary with them. They bring them back to the office the next day, just drop them off in the window and then just go home. Or they can have a family member drop it off. It's very easy. That is amazing. That and is then amazing. we read it right away. And once we get it and report it back to the referring doctor, it's pretty simple. Of course, any urgent findings, we let them know right away. Now, you mentioned in using a halter monitor, that would be someone that has these symptoms of the heart, but you can't really kind of figure out what they are because they come and go. 
Correct. So like the flutters, the skipping. So can we talk about that? Yeah, the flutters or skippings, you know, sometimes it's kind of like looking for a mouse in your house. <laughs> when, you, when you're looking for it, it's not there, but then somehow you hear something or you see something and you know it's there and you're looking for it. And the other thing is a lot of times we'll get referrals for patients who have fainted and passed out. So also to make sure that these patients aren't having any rhythm abnormalities causing them to pass out, like a really slow or a really fast heartbeat, we put this monitor on them. Because a lot of times patients don't have symptoms. Say with atrial fibrillation, which is the most common irregular heartbeat, it occurs in more than 8% of patients over 80 years of age, the most common reason for which people are on blood thinners. A lot of times if it's a chronic condition, you won't feel it. And so when people are having runs of the atrial fibrillation, they won't even know about it. And you can find it sometimes on a Holter monitor. And you can see what's causing it or what the pattern is. Exactly how fast it is, the initiation, the termination, and any other associated symptoms or irregular heartbeats with that. Now, in the flutters and in the skipping, once you've identified that, then do you go to the other diagnostic tools to further investigate it? There, there are so many other things you can do once you detect that. You, right. can, you can do it for a lo- You could do a 30-day event monitor where you wear something for 30 days, mm-hmm. and then you trigger, and when you trigger the symptoms, uh, symptom button or there's a fast heartbeat, it'll record for a brief period of time, although it's a little cumbersome to wear for 30 days. And then there are other things that we also do at St. Mary's called implantable loop recorders. Mm-hmm. So patients who have fainted and they can't, and the clinicians cannot find an identifiable cause of their fainting episode. They can put these implantable little devices under the xiphoid process right near basically your solar plexus, and it can stay in there for a year, and they can detect your rhythm so they can really look for something, and we do that at St. Mary's as well. And they, where does this go, Doc, just to... So it's that right the, in the chest, right, right under the, the xiphoid process. Okay, yep. just to, to clarify for the public. That, that's right. That's it's incredible. a very tiny device. And they keep that in for a year, and they're able to monitor. Correct. And then from there, they can treat. Correct. In other words, if you're looking for a cause of fainting, and a lot of times when you see a patient with fainting, you've done a million tests, but it's all fruitless at that point, you put one of these in to make sure that you're not missing anything. And every so often, you'll find a really slow heartbeat that is hard, eludes detection, is hard to find. And having this implantable device in there will allow them to see a longer period of time and find it. So if you found something like that, then you could put a pacemaker in, and that would solve the problem. I was just, yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because I know that you know I hear report in the morning, and we do quite a bit of pacemakers. Absolutely, we have great, great implanters on staff, you know, and we do everything from simple pacemakers to defibrillators at St. Mary's hospitals and ablations as well right. for irregular heartbeats. It's it's incredible the technology that we have available to be able to help people live, you know, lives that are, you know, meet the level of normalcy for them, you know, get Absolutely. them back to what their normal routines are. And not to and not to not to, you know, can uh, to keep going on about it, but the great thing is that, you know, Years ago, you would have to go out of town to have all this done, and now you can have it in town locally. Oh, definitely. I knew so many people way back when that did have to leave town for that. And, you know, it was a goal of the hospital as well as the vision, I have to, you know, say of Dr. Paul Kelly, definitely our our leader um, in cardiology at St. Mary's, to bring us up to that level. And, you know, with with his, his leadership in bringing this team together, I mean, you've been able to do so much more over the last five, six years. So it's incredible. I couldn't agree more. Under his, under Dr. Kelly's leadership, uh, he's, you know, he's brought St. Mary's to the vanguard in terms of forefront of cardiac care. We've won so many awards from the American Heart Association and garnered so much acclaim from the American College of Cardiology with our heart failure program. So, kudos to Dr. Kelly. He's done a great job. I'm going to save this so that I could play it for him on <laughs> Saturday night. Maybe he'll get me an extra diamond ticket. <laughs> so I wanted before I mean we get it, the program goes so quickly. I want to talk a little bit about carotids. Yes. And some of the testing that we do for carotid arteries and what leads to carotids being blocked. So another another test that we perform at this at the West Main Street Diagnostic Center is we do carotid ultrasound. So a lot of times patients will have issues with fainting or dizziness and what we can do is just do a simple ultrasound of their neck arteries to make sure that there are no blockages because if you have a blockage even asymptomatic if it's large enough it could potentially cause a stroke. And you said asymptomatic. 
Do, are there many individuals walking around in our community that have no idea? Absolutely. And the risk of getting a blockage in one of those, heart art, uh, those carotid arteries is no different than having a blockage in your heart artery, including diabetes, um, high cholesterol, chronic kidney um, disease, we, um, you know, or smoking. Those all predispose to blockages in the neck developing. And those things, if untreated, can cause strokes. So when you diagnose someone with a, you know, a black carotid, what is the procedure? What ends up happening? So once we determine from the ultrasound of their neck that there is a significant blockage, typically over 70% blocked, then we can send them to a surgeon. And we have surgeons at Franklin Medical Group at St. Mary's Hospital who are very skilled in doing so. They can perform surgery to clean out the artery known as a carotid endarterectomy. Basically what it does is fillets out the plaque so that it doesn't cause a blockage and a stroke. In some cases, they can even stent these in uh, the neck to relieve the blockage. I can't, I'll tell you, I have to, to tell you, the audience and you a story. In working um, with Nogtuck Valley Radiology many moons ago, we had a technologist working for us and we had gotten new equipment and they were testing it. And she said, oh, you can check my carotids. And she was 75% blocked. Wow. And she was a non-smoker. Um, you know, did not have high cholesterol, and she was 75% black, and she had a cousin that had had a stroke. Wow. And, and you know, way back then, it was Dr. Tadros who used to do them. He's since retired many moons ago. But um, he did her surgery, and she did incredibly well. We, you know, followed her, and, and she's amazing. But, you know, it shows you, and she had no symptoms, absolutely no symptoms. And thankfully she didn't. And I, I can say is that a lot of the patients I have had, luckily who've undergone the surgery, have done just great. And that's the beauty of it is that the, um, the skill at same areas of the surgeons who perform these procedures is so great that the level of complications is very low. And that's why we do these, because we can refer them to a curative procedure that basically with very little risk comparatively. You know, there's some groups out there that do these um, screenings on carotids, you know, and it's a self-pay kind of thing. And you go and, you know, you have these scans, the ultrasound scans on your carotids. You can go to a mall and right. these people come in and do them. And I'm so leery of those. And I'm so leery because you don't know who's doing it. You don't know who where the results are going. You don't have that information. So, you know, if you have any questions or concerns or you have a strong family history, we so recommend that you follow up with your physician and get referred. And I think it's important to know, Robin, that a lot of these uh, modalities of imaging, especially ultrasound, whether it's carotid ultrasound for the neck or a, a um, heart ultrasound, an echocardiogram, are very technical and very operator dependent. In other words, mm -hmm. if the technician doing the study is really good, you can get great information. If the, if it's a suboptimal study, it's much harder to interpret. Thankfully, I can say that the staff we have working at the CVDC at our office is excellent. They're some of the best I've ever worked with, and the image quality is excellent. I've had doctors from other facilities look at our pictures and just they're amazed at the quality. And that's so, so important. It's so important to ensure the quality of the technologist, the quality of the imaging, and you have to you have to be accredited for that. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's important to know that, you know, if you're affiliated with a hospital, you are accredited, and all of the scans are accredited, and they have to pass certain levels of accreditation for you to be able to perform them and read them. And we and the staff that we have, the tech, the staff that we have at West Main Street, have worked in some of the finest institutions in the state, and have worked elsewhere, and have come to St. Mary's. And the quality of their work speaks for itself. Well, I well, Doc, I can't thank you enough. We're believe it or not, we came to the end. Oh, geez, we wow. came to the end. We did really good. So again, I want to remind everyone we um, had with us tonight Dr. Peter Chen, who's a cardiologist with the Franklin Medical Group, and you can find him on our St. Mary's website, stmh.org, or you can go on our Franklin Medical Group website, which is franklinmedicalgroup.org, and you go on the website, click on cardiology service and Dr. Chen's picture will come up. And we also have a video of you on there, Dr. Chen. Oh, no. Yeah, talking, <laughs> talking about your experiences and, and about cardiology, which is kind of neat so people could see and hear you and the little programming we did with you. And you're going to be on um, Channel 3 coming up. Yeah, so I've heard, yes, yes. So we're going to be, we'll let the audience know when you're going to be on TV and you're going to be talking more about testing. 
That's right, and a patient uh, about uh, with a very interesting case uh, will be uh, highlighting for that, uh, that's Channel great. 3. We'll make sure that we let the audience know you're going to be on Better Living. I think it is. We're going to have you're going to be on. So we'll Better Connecticut. That's it. Better. We'll, that's make, right. we'll make sure we let the audience know when that's going to be because um, we certainly want people to be able to tune in. So thank you so much again for joining us. And if people want to know a little bit more, please go to our website again, stmh.org, and or you can call the Franklin Medical Group Cardiology Department, which is two zero three seven zero nine seven three hundred. So Doc, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Robin. Have a great night. And we want to thank everyone for listening to us tonight. And I want to remind everyone that we will be back um, next Friday, I believe it is. Um, we are going to be doing a program, um, our morning program, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Heart Health Month. And we're going to talk about our pump club at St. Mary's Hospital and of two APRNs who helped to uh, run the pump club at St. Mary's Hospital, helping to keep patients um, healthy and not coming back and forth to the hospital. And we will see you uh, next Friday. And then again in two weeks on next Wednesday, the 17th, I believe it is two weeks, we will hear, see you again. So thank you for joining us. Medically Speaking, St. Mary's Hospital, Robin Sills, exceptional care, every patient, every day. Have a great night.